This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. The 1960s is the battle cry. And so what happens is, is during that era, there are really powerful political pundits and, and operatives and really powerful uh Christian leaders that that determine that they're going to take their country back. And their mantra is one of extremism. Their mantra is one of, we are the rightful founders of the country. And so we are going to get our country back. Whatever we have to do to do that, we will do. To me, if you, if you think the 50s are the time to return to, you're telling on yourself. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And this is Full Mutuality. So uh, today's podcast, we're uh, really excited. It's my favorite line. We're really excited about today's podcast. So you're so probably always quote, excited. quote it he's, along with he's, me. In our couple, he's the golden retriever. You know, he greets everyone at the door. He's the happy one to see. It. I'm the suspicious one. I'm like, mm, I don't know if I like that person yet. And yeah, he's like, like a cat. hi, I'm so happy to see you. The optimistic, <laughs> friendly one. Yeah. Brad, I am so happy to have a fellow pessimistic person yes. on our, like when I hear you talking about, you know, you, how that's you, I'm like, I, I relate. I definitely. Yes. I, yeah. if once you're in the group, I'm like, I will, uh, you're, you're part of the family. It's like, we'll defend you to the death. And, uh, but you know, until you're in the group, I'm not so sure. You know what I mean? Okay. I have a question that goes with that. Yeah. Um, do you know your Enneagram type by any chance? You know what is funny is I do not because I've never done it. And uh, I feel like as in the evangelical cosmos, I'm <laughs> it's, it's like, a cult. <laughs> yeah, I like, like Corlin and Megan at there after looked at me like, are you, how, what? You, how you, are you still you in this, this, yet? this group? And you, you haven't gotten baptized? What's your problem? So <laughs> have, yeah. have people speculated about what you are? Because I already feel like I have a, a suspicion on on what you might actually. There's two I, that I'm thinking. I don't. About. I have no idea. And I, when people say they're like a one or a seven, I, I you don't know what have any no of idea that what it means. So I'm happy to just tell me, and then I don't have to do the test, and then I can just what? tell people. Gail says I'm like a seven or I'm like a three, you, and you know, you could be either an eight like me or a one. And the reason, so eights are very loyal, protective person. Personality types. Okay. They tend to be leaders. Um, their big fear is being controlled, um, but they tend to, you know, have an environment around them. They look after the people around them. They don't like people being manipulated and messed around with. That's that's an eight. Yeah, you're pointing at yourself. Hmm. The ones are rule followers. I when you give your um, background, when I heard you yeah. talk about younger you, I'm like, <laughs> when <laughs> I've just been like, oh, that really passionate evangelical kid. I, I see myself. I'm like. He's probably an eight, but I don't know. <laughs> no, I think it's eight more more than one. I I I like to do good and not wrong. I don't like to follow rules, and I'm not saying mm-hmm. I always do good. I'm just saying like my wife. You know, I don't know. My wife's like that's against the rules, and I'm like, yeah, it's a stupid rule. It's who cares? And hey, so you're yeah, you're yeah. an eight. My suspicion yeah. was you might be like me, and you might be like yeah. I don't know if you know Joe Lumen at all. If you've yeah. heard her stuff, she's an eight. Yeah. There's certain people I could pick them out. I'm like, yeah, that's an eight. You have the characteristics that, <laughs> that I don't know Joe, Joe that well, but I Joe does not seem like one who likes to follow rules. So So, uh, for those of you in the audience who have been hearing us chatting a little bit, you probably recognize the voice on the other end. I realize we haven't uh, introduced our guest today. Our guest is the illustrious um, Brad Onishi. Who <laughs> He's shaking his head at the illustrious comment. <laughs> or infamous. 
that's okay. I mean, yeah. that's fine. Or just prof, prof. Does the prof niche. Work? I no. think just the niche. niche. Like a very niche person. He has a niche. The niche. And, you know, he stays there. Yeah. The niche, the acquired taste. The, uh, I am so excited to have. I'm excited. We, I've been listening to your podcast. Um, other podcasts that I listened to have had you on, whether it was Veterans of Culture War with Zach or, or, or Scott, who's been working with you on some of your podcast yeah. stuff. We love Scott. And, yeah. uh, I think your episode, the recent chapel probation that you and Scott did oh. together, because I'm used to hearing you on Straight White American Jesus, which is your podcast, but on on Scott's, you guys cracked up so much, and I don't think I've ever heard you laugh so much on any interview, and I was like, oh, that sounded like like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, Scott, Scott's, Scott's the best, and um, I feel like he he creates an environment where you want to you want to laugh and in a good way. You know what I mean? Does. So. Completely I mean, know what you mean. In, in good English professor fashion. Yeah. He, he creates a good, uh, a good laughing environment. So, um, I do want to say congratulations to you on, uh, the, the very recent release of your brand new book entitled preparing for war, um, which will probably be kind of the driving force of our conversation tonight. I can't recommend the book enough. And Gail and I have uh, unfortunately only gotten through a few chapters and it's already very gripping. Very scary. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I think I wrote it on your wall or something. I was like, great book, but I can't go to sleep. That's my only yeah. complaint after reading this. Nate likes to read to me and I'm like, oh, that was like a horror story before bed. Thanks, babe. <laughs> so I'm, I'm rewatching um, the Alien movie franchise and simultaneously reading your book. And I think it's a good one-two punch for people who really don't want to sleep at night. <laughs> you could be watching like Ted Lasso or Dairy I, I, Girls. You know what I mean? Like you don't need to be watching the Alien franchise. That's your – wow. That's your that's, problem, Nate. Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my escapism is in science fiction and science yeah. fiction often – crosses over to uh to horror which is kind of what's going on in this book so the thrust of of what you're you're getting at is basically drawing a through line from sort of the rise of the the white christian nationalist movement uh here in the u.s and how that the the nascent movement back in like the 50s and 60s or really the 60s as a response to um, what was happening in the cultural zeitgeist at the time um, and a longing to return to the decade of the 50s for white Christians and how that there, there's a there's almost a direct lineage from there to what we saw in 2021 uh, on January 6th. Um, now, obviously, things have calmed down um, in the last couple of years, at least at the surface. We're not seeing it quite so much on the national news scale although uh the the inability to elect the speaker of the house kind That's of new. kind of <laughs> that gave gave us a glimpse of glimpse of uh, uh i don't know the the memory of that kind yeah. of thing going on yeah. but um yeah. but tell us a little bit about that you you also kind of draw parallels to your own life and yeah. and your upbringing to to a degree right cuz unlike me you and gail came to the evangelical world as teenagers. I well, as a child, but yeah, I get what you mean. I wasn't like... Oh, yeah, yeah, because you went to public school. I, uh, on the other hand, never saw the inside of a public school except in extracurricular activities. Um, <laughs> I, was, I saw the inside of a fundamentalist Baptist church that had a school six to seven days a week from the time I was five years old. So that, that's my, my, my life in evangelicalism is long. <laughs> well, let's let's start with the 60s and um I can kind of explain 
some of my own story in a minute. But um, I, so, you know, the 1960s are a time when most of us uh, kind of imagine the country is making progress on a lot of fronts. Um, and so you have the civil rights movement. Uh, we have voting rights uh, and, and the Voting Rights Act. Really, people don't understand, like really – ends Jim Crow good for good. Mm -hmm. Like there's no more poll tax. There's no more, um, there's no more ways that kind of really, uh, in a widespread way, prevent people from voting through intimidation or through various hoops that jump through immigration reform. So, um, a lot of, especially Asian Americans are very familiar with the uh, immigration reform of the 1960s that basically changed, um, how immigration happens here. Uh, the feminine mystique, 1963, not to mention uh, women entering the workforce. And this, uh, let's not forget the sexual revolution, um, which, you know, we can debate what that means and how that worked. But I will say that for white evangelicals, for white Christian nationalists, the sexual revolution was very real. It was very scary and it ruined everything. Um, <laughs> there's queer liberation movements happening uh, throughout the 60s. There are mainline Protestants who are actually helping with that movement. But mm -hmm. uh, Stonewall there in New York City is like a big watershed moment. Interracial marriage, um, which, mm -hmm. you know, all of us on the call are familiar with in some way, um, right. you know, are is – you know, 1967 loving decision uh, it, from the Supreme Court changes everything. What's the point? These all seem like good. Th I think most people are listening. Are like, yeah, that was a good thing. That was um, a great era. Yeah, good stuff yeah. was going down. Glad that happened. Um, mm -hmm. This is precisely when the white Christian nationalist says to themselves, that's when the country wasn't great again. That's when um, sex became um, free from its traditional foundations. That's when gender became fuzzy and um, non-binary uh, and non-distinct. That's when work and home, uh, everything got – you know, the, the sphere of domesticity that women occupied and the sphere of labor that men occupied got all mixed up. Um, this is when – uh, gay folks started to sort of become uh, represented and uh, mainstream in American culture. This is when immigrants from different parts, not Eastern Europe, but Asia and Africa and other places started to really appear in, in American consciousness. So um, the 1960s is the battle cry. And so what happens is, is during that era, there are really powerful political pundits and, and operatives and really powerful uh, Christian leaders that, that, determined that they're going to take their country back. And their mantra is one of extremism. Their mantra is one of, we are the rightful founders of the country, not these gay, interracial, immigrant, non-native speaking, um, independent women, fill in the blank category, whatever you want to say. And so we are going to get our country back. Whatever we have to do to do that, we will do. And and I could talk all the details. I mean, it's all in the book, but uh, of how that's happened, the ways it's been chipping away at democracy, so on and so forth. So, but to me, if you, if you think the fifties are the time to return to, you're telling on yourself, right? Yeah, you yeah. Know we I mean? can tell who you might be if you yeah. want to go back to that time. Totally, totally. Going how how in terms of how this ties into you, something I found fascinating as I've been listening to your podcast, as I've been reading your book, when I think of the extreme evangelical culture in the US, like I'm from Canada, right? So like when I think of it and I think of the influence evangelicals have, in my head I'm like, oh, the Bible belt, oh the South. They're the ones with the influence, they're the ones that have stirred this ship in that direction. And the state I would have never it would have never popped in my head as being like a problematic state for spreading evangelicalism around and, and stirring things up. Oh, I mean, the last thing I would have thought of is liberal California, like, yeah. ooh, big bag boogeyman of California. Would have, you guys are supposed to be very godless out there. So explain <laughs> to me how California ties into your life and how it ties into evangelicalism. I know your book goes through it in detail, but like, can you give us some of the 
how that ties in and your story and everything. <laughs> oh, for sure. No, and it's a, it's a huge part of this. Um, so, um, you know, I, I won't spend a ton of time on this, but basically in the 1950s through the 1970s, California gains millions and millions of, of I mean, people undergo the Sunbelt migration, which is millions and tens of millions of Americans moving from the Midwest and the South to the Southwest. So that could be Phoenix, that could be LA. And a lot of them moved to Orange County, where I grew up. Now, Orange County is what, you know, people make fun of it, and it deserves it. We totally deserve it. Like, Orange County's Orange County. And it, everything <laughs> you think Orange County is, it is. Um, it's the beach. It's a lot of, like, uh, people with uh, Hawaiian shirts and bikinis and uh, cosmetic surgery and so on and so forth. But what a lot of people don't realize is that it, it is the – it was and still, in, in some sense, uh, it, it remains an epicenter for American conservatism. And so in the 1960s, you have take root there, this militant, libertarian, pro-capitalist, individualist Christianity. This is where you get megachurches. The megachurch movement in the United States, it really comes from Southern California. Hmm. Um, you know, you get uh, the Crystal Cathedral, but then we have Rick Warren, and we mm -hmm. have all yeah. the Calvary chapels, and we have um, so many more. So none of those are accidents. You have the John Birch Society, which is basically the, like, grandfather of QAnon. Mm -hmm. The epicenter is Orange County. Um, they think that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is a Soviet uh, agent. They think communist. that, like, yeah, Dwight Eisenhower is a communist. They think that teachers are taking their clothes off in class to teach health class, and they're groomers. Does that sound familiar? Well, yeah. it's not new, right? Um, this is the this is the the region that makes Barry Goldwater the the GOP Republican candidate. And some of you are like. Did not come here for uh, who's Goldwater? <laughs> yeah. You know what? History. I know. <laughs> it was reading your book to me, and I know the answer to the chapter. I'm like, I know who he's talking about. It's not Donald Trump. I know it sounds exactly like Donald so, Trump, but I know the right answer to this question. <laughs> and you're Canadian. That's like so. No, it's so. because I have been paying attention, and your podcast has been oh. very informative to me. Well, it's been super helpful. <laughs> is that, so is that you, a credit in your class? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's well, and it just you know, if you're not a, a nerd like any of the three of us. Um, so you may not care about Barry Goldwater, but you will care that the church I grew up in in, the, in my hometown is Richard Nixon's hometown, right? Mm -hmm. Richard Nixon comes exactly from where I'm from, okay? Um, where did we get Ronald Reagan? It was from the Southland. It was from LA. It was from Orange County. He was in Orange County almost every other week in this time. I mean, he, he this is like his spiritual home. Where did we get John Wayne? John Wayne, you know, if you all have read mm -hmm. Kristen Dume and you know all about John Wayne as this icon of like – white conservative toxic masculinity. Our airport is called John Wayne Airport, right? Wow. Um, this is where we get uh, um, Pat Boone and uh, all of these folks. So all that to say, Goldwater, Nixon, Reagan, John Wayne, these are the men that really form the kind of pantheon, right, of uh, American conservatism in the 70s and 80s. And they all come from that same place. Now, I'll give you one more example. Where does focus on the family start? I starts right yeah you know yeah you've done the homework and i mean i'm not even gonna say orange county i can specifically nail down acadia because you corrected you don't want to get emails on zach's uh, <laughs> I, right? so it's like right like we're you know like uh, scott okamoto's backyard it's like right mm -hmm. down so focus on the family is not started in georgia or in mm -hmm. uh texas focus on the family started like basically equidistant from where i grew up in los angeles Right. Mm. Um, you know, John Dobson went to University of Southern California, USC. So mm. all that to say, um, there's so much influence and there's so much money in these parts. And I'll just give you one more thing. And I know people who are not from California hate California. They don't want to hear about it. So I, and I totally understand. <laughs> so I'll be quiet in a minute. But right now in Orange County alone, you have more people than 19 American states. 
right? In LA County, you have more people than something like 25 American states. Mm-hmm. So just the sheer amount of money and people makes it like a natural place to develop this kind of uh, these kinds of movements politically, culturally, theologically. And, and if you do the history, a lot of it is there. I have um, sort of a serious question for you. Um, I want to know, Bradley, are you part of awokeness? That's what- <laughs> you shouldn't have started drink- drinking. When <laughs> I laughed so hard when you were reading this op-ed recently and you quoted someone as calling it awokeness. Was that the term they used? I think, yeah, the great awokening. The, the um, great awokening. Which is just like... Because, like, yeah, uh, that was Ross Dowd at the New York Times. And then the week before that was Trish Harrison Warren, who called, uh, who was talking about, like, queer relationships and gay relationships and other stuff and saying that it was same sexual behavior. So anyway, it's just who like. talks like this? What are these terms that these people yeah. are inventing to come yeah. up with describing things we already, you know? <laughs> yeah. Caring about justice. Awokeness. Awoke, <laughs> woke <movement>. Awokening. <laughs> the awokening. Wow. Yeah. yeah that, could, that could be some interesting horror movie. Mm. <laughs> I don't yeah. understand. That'd be a great. Yes. You should. Yeah. Nate, you should get with with Lucas Kwong, who did Monster in the Mirror, and y'all should write some like really cool horror movie. That would be, I would, I would watch. Yeah. I'm, I now have a lot. Yeah. We should mm. talk. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like the right is already creating that, right? Like they already are creating a narrative about the left, about, you know, uh, when you mentioned, you know, back in the 50s and, and uh, the fear over groomer culture, yeah. that's something that's mm-hmm. definitely resurfacing these days. And um, uh, this this fear about critical race theory, I mean, uh, and they're going to teach it to your little kids in elementary school. Yeah. And it's like, no, do you no. know what critical <laughs> race theory is? And what do you think they're doing? What are you imagining <laughs> is happening here? It's uh, they well, We know some- what they're imagining. They've, they've talked about it. They've said, oh, you know, we're lining up all the white kids in the front of the, the classroom and they're all of them have room. to apologize to the black kids in the, in the it's, classroom. It's, they're like, really imagining this. Like, yeah, and this I'm is- like, for real? Like, you guys think that is what this have, is like? Have, have yeah. you, have you, have you gone to, uh, you know, your parent teacher meetings? Have you talked to your, your kids, uh, educators? Find out what's happening in the classrooms, you know, instead of I, just I think coming a lot up with these it, ideas. It might even be people who've never been to public school. I mean, yeah. I feel like the Christian mm-hmm. culture and community, yeah. especially in the U.S., perpetuates Christian private schools and, uh, the public education system is sort of they're trying to tank it a lot of the Republicans to begin with mm-hmm. and they want it all. Like it's like they couldn't desegregate and they couldn't stop desegregation. So the private Christian school movement was, was essentially to preserve that. And it's, there's still that, I mean, I homeschooled in, in Quebec and I'm like, my son's like, it's the worst thing you ever did. Mom, he's still <laughs> resentful. He's 23 years old. He, I didn't even do it like all through elementary I did half elementary. And he was not happy about the fact that I homeschooled him that long. But um, I remember there being a lot of fear like through the through the just the conventions because like the curriculum stuff and getting together to learn from other people i was just amazed at the paranoia of what they imagined public schools were like a lot of them hadn't been to but it it was just this culture of teaching what was happening and i was like but i grew up in public school and it's not at all like it was just it almost seemed like some science fiction like fairy tale not fairy tale opposite horror story that doesn't was so fictional like to me it was obviously cartoony in in Mm. its presentation but yeah that seems to be like some very embedded beliefs and American evangelical conservative circles about. I, I think that's exactly right. I think that I think I think the way you just described it is, you know, when you don't know something, but you just talk about it all the time, 
Mm. And, and you've never experienced it. You've never been there, but all you do is just, you just feed on each other. You stand around in a circle or after church and you're eating, you're drinking your coffee and you just talk about how bad the government schools are. In your mind, it just gets worse and worse and worse, where in reality, you've never stepped foot in there. You don't know. Um, and I'll give you an example. This this might sound like a weird example. It's a very American example. But I remember the, one of the last years I was at uh, the church where I worked, uh, there was this big push for us to have a Super Bowl party. And the idea was, is that at the, at the, at the halftime of the Super Bowl party, uh, they were going to have a Christian message. And so, you know, no commercials, no uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers or whoever. We're going to stop and talk to Jesus, right? And, I, and I, I raised my hand in the staff meeting. It was a mega church. There's like 20 pastors. And I raised my hand. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be real honest. Um, the people I know, uh, not that I know any non-Christians. I'm just saying, maybe I, you know. Uh, um, <laughs> They, uh, I don't, I don't really imagine them wanting to come to the old church to watch the Super Bowl. I, I think a lot of them are going to be at home with beer and like Fritos and their friends. So I have a kind of crazy idea. Um, what if we as Christians just, I don't know, let me just get this out. We hung out with them at their house and just hung out and just showed ourselves to be really nice, respectful, interesting, kind human beings. And then maybe at some point they would want to come to church, right? And everyone just looked at me like, okay, radical in the back over here, right? And the, what 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 they were really saying was, is we would never go to a non-Christian's house on Super Bowl Sunday. That must be the most scary, like what happens at, what happens at a non-Christian's house during the Super Bowl? Probably like an orgy. Know. Yeah, every, <laughs> well, that's what's going on. Right? Sure. It's probably like everyone drinks blood and has an orgy. That's probably what they do. We, we, we can't do that. Right. And in reality, it's just a bunch of like 42 year olds, like having a couple beers and their kids are running around mm -hmm. and half the people aren't watching the thing because they're talking about mortgages and like yeah. tax rates. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like them being like suburban, boring, middle-aged people. But in the Christian mind, it was like, I could not, I'm not going to a Super Bowl party because I don't want to put on a donkey mask while someone else puts on a clown mask. <laughs> and every kind of worst sexual debauchery I've ever thought comes to fruition. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, smoke crack and like, you know, and, <laughs> and so when, when you think about the way they've just demonized the public school system, I think there's a very similar thing happening mm -hmm. there, right? It's yeah. like, this must be the worst den of sin. Uh, and I'm going to send my kid in there. No way. Right. And, and anyway, I, it, it, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. There's an interesting parallel there because there's, there's so many similarities with, um, what was happening in the Southeast. I mean, I come from uh, the Bob Jones University world and that kind of separation from uh, the outside world, from society was so common. And that was, that was the norm. Yep. Um, you know, we, uh, if we were to watch the Super Bowl, it would have to be, you know, at our pastor's house, you know, with, uh, and then somebody was going to turn off the TV uh, during the halftime show and during commercials. Of course, yeah, yeah. the halftime yeah. show, that's the worst. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And oh, I, I went to, I was in, I think I was in college the year that the the Justin Timberlake, Janet Jackson um, halftime show uh, took place. So of course everyone was talking about it, but we couldn't talk about it because if we were to talk about it, we would let on that we knew yeah. what happened, which meant that somewhere in our orbit, someone was somewhere watching that. that control show. broke down of keeping your minds pure right. from every possible... Yeah, I find it fascinating, though, the, the distinctions um, and the similarities between uh, the East Coast, the West Coast and that that separation. But what I find a little, I guess, perhaps confusing is how we go from that mentality to one in which 
the uh, they're trying to take over the government. They're yeah. trying to enact a coup. Yeah. Okay. I have some questions in this. You're jogging my memory with Stephanie. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go for it. Go for it. I'm so wondering in your mind, Bradley, when Trump got elected, were you surprised? Was that like a, yeah, no, being around I, white evangelicals and seeing, did this was this a shock moment for you? I, I think it was both. I think it was a... Um, you know, how did this happen? Like this, this is just like, I remember the night he got elected was just a, uh, how can, how can this man be the president? This is not, this is George or George W. Bush seemed to be such a incompetent uh, person to be in the white house and the leader of, of uh, this country. How can this man who is leagues away from that guy be the president? And on the other hand, it's like, you could feel it brewing, the anger, the resentment, the grievance during the Obama years. So shocked, but not surprised, which I know other people have said, but I think that's a good way to sum it up. And then going from that, that buildup, like you said, through the Obama era to seeing Trump get elected, it was sort of like, what? And then, oh, that makes sense looking at all the pieces for coming together and how that happened and white evangelicals and where they've landed on things, seeing that those results come in to know how much of them supported Trump. And then the insurrection happens and you have... Jesus everywhere in the background signs with the Trump signs. How about where where were you at that? I know because I read your book. (laughs) Tell us us where were you at that moment when the insurrection happened? How did that play into, you know, your podcast, your book? Tell us what was that moment like for you? Well, it was, and and I think this will go back to Nate's comment. It's like um, so that morning, you know, that when on J sixth, I I went surfing that morning, and I was super um, naive. Because John Ossoff and, and Raphael Warnock had just been elected to the Senate. So now you have Biden in office, you have this slim majority in the Senate, and you have a blue Congress at her house. And so I just thought there's a chance here to like undo some of the carnage that has happened. And who knew that Georgia was going to elect uh, a man who preaches from you know Martin Luther King Jr.'s former pulpit and mm-hmm. a, a Jewish uh, dude in his thir- you know in his thirties, that's that's different, right? So I'm surfing, I'm sitting out there, I'm alone, and I'm just like, wow. And I took this picture, and I still have. I look, for, I look at it from time to time, and I have this like, sort of just. It's not a cheesy grin. It's more just like this like calm, mm. s- calm smile. You know, like when you're just you've just had a good day, and you're like, I'm gonna take a picture. It was a good day. I don't feel anxious. I don't feel tired. I don't feel frustrated. Just like things are nice. It's a good day. And I just took this picture and there's like this beautiful ocean in the background. And I get home and I start seeing the insurrection unfold, right? And if I just go back to Nate's discussion of like how do they want to take over the government, much less how do they want to just overrun the capital like violently, I think there's a real shift. And and I'm totally happy to hear what y'all think of this because you lived it is, you know, I I deconstruct in, in the George W. Bush era. And in that era, there was this real sense of like, Bill Clinton was an adulterer. Bill Clinton was, he's a, he's immoral. We need a Christian man to get the country back on track. And like George W. Bush was all of that. I used to be an alcoholic and I converted. I, I, Jesus changed my heart and uh, Bible is my favorite book. And I'm from Texas and I, um, I'm, I'm the guy and it never scratched the itch. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it just never scratched the, like, I want my country back and I don't want all these people who are here to be here, I don't want all these folks that I don't think should be on TV or in Congress or in front of me. I just, I don't, I, I'm tired of like all these irritants and all these interlopers and all these people that are in my space that I just, uh, uh, this is, it's still not the America I want. And then Obama, mm-hmm. mixed race, immigrant dad, 
dad of African descent, Muslim dad from Hawaii. Like, you know, my family's from Maui. Like, we're so used to being people thinking like Hawaii is not even part of the United States. Like, we used to have a joke like, hey, are you going to Hawaii? Have you changed your money yet? And people would like go down to the bank and be like, <laughs> I need Hawaiian money, you know, and it was like really fun. So this dude's from like a state that's not even a real state for a lot of Americans. It's certainly not mm-hmm. Texas. It's certainly not New York. And you got a black wife and black kids. And then gay marriage is legal. And I think for, I think during that eight years, it goes from we prayed, we voted, we did see at the poll, we did a lot of stuff to get this country back. And this is what happened. So screw it. Screw it. We're done. It's 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 we don't need some guy who you who had a nice conversion and his talks with a southern drawl like George W. Bush. Okay? We need a brutal, barbaric jerk. Who will, who will not just do the stuff we want, like George W. Bush kind of did, but like, I want to see him make the people hurt that I want to hurt. Mm-hmm. I want, I want to see him like brutalize people. That's what I, that's what I need I, to feel better and like scratch the itch. So it's not just that I want to pray for our country. Like you, you said, Nate, it's like, I want to take over the government. Yeah. And I, I just want to say the quiet part out loud. I don't want Muslims here. Give a, give me a Muslim ban. I don't want Mexican people here. Just build a wall. I don't want transgender people in the military. I don't want, you know, and we could just go down the, right, the dozens of things. And so, and when none of that shakes out and he loses, Donald Trump loses to to Joe Biden, it's just very clear. It's like, all right, let's do it even more. We will Mm -hmm. literally overrun the Capitol Mm -hmm. and and try to destroy American democracy to save the country that we want. Because democracy is not the sacred value. Power is. And and I think that's, all of that is unplayed or has been played out over the last, you know, recent memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's fascinating because you have like the Mike Pence, who is the evangelical image of yep. what they claim to be and represent. But you would never imagine them ever putting a Mike Pence as or voting for a Mike Pence as president. They want him as the VP. But like you said, they needed someone who's willing to do this, the grueling, dirty work. And I and I could be wrong on this. I don't know what you think, Riley, but is it the he's a baby Christian? That's the excuse behind why Trump is OK. He's valid, even though they know he's not going to back up exactly what what they say they believe. I, I think that helps. Right. I think it's a nice way. If, if somebody asks, how can you vote for this man? He's not a Christian. I think it's a nice way to just very quickly say, oh, he's a baby Christian. You know, and if I'm Robert Jeffress or if I'm Ralph Reed or if I'm, you know, uh, Lance Wall now, I can say, well, everything I'm hearing is that he has accepted Christ, but he's a baby Christian. Right. So it's a nice rhetorical like, mm-hmm. no, sorry. You, you're saying I voted for a non-Christian. Well, I, that's wrong. And what's really at stake is um, he is an impure man. And one of the things I learned from Leslie Doral Smith's book, Compromising Positions, is that you often want an impure man to do impure things so that you can keep your family and your nation pure. Like if you want the pristine, pure, unscathed body or the pure, pristine, unscathed country, then you need this barbaric brutalizer to keep all the impure stuff out. And that means, yeah, he's going to do dirty stuff and he's going to come home with bloody hands and muddy boots, but um, that's what we need. You know, that's, and that like Mike Pence, he's 20 years too late. Like 1999, Mike Pence is like, he Mm -hmm. is in fashion. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) 2022, that guy looks like a retrograde. He looks like, Mm -hmm. are you serious? He's not near mean enough. Like he's, he's, he's not near grievance enough. He's not near, angry enough that guy that guy just always looks like he's constipated and he's wondering why the medicine isn't working like 
You know what I mean? He doesn't look like somebody who's going to go beat people up. And that's what they want. He's probably praying for Trump and walking alongside of him and help. I'm just saying the evangelical. No, I know. (laughs) You know, he's he's a good man and he's there to – even if Trump is doing it the wrong way, at least he has Pence on the side to kind of coax him along, help him. You know, the Lord will bless Pence and help him, you know. And then I I think it was during the insurrection uh, where Trump – Put his life in danger, put Pence's yeah. life in danger, mm-hmm. and yep. um, the threats that Trump made to Pence even afterwards. And I think, how do evangelicals who are so excited about Pence feel or overlook or think through all of that? It's, I guess for me, it just seems so baffling. Like I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around how all that works. How do you hold all the, all mm-hmm. of that together as an evangelical? It, it reminds me of the uh, the Dark Knight and mm-hmm. how you have these this collection of mob bosses who are unable to do anything about Batman. They know that Batman's the issue. They got to do something about him, but they can't do anything about him because they operate by a set of rules. Um, and if they break those rules, they're not going to be able to function. Their organizations are going to fall apart. They'll be prosecuted, etc. Meanwhile, the Joker exists. So maybe yeah. if we can get this guy to do the thing that we want, because he doesn't operate by any of those rules and i think uh you know that allegory of you know uh, trump (laughs) that was pretty decent yeah i'm hey i'm proud of it i got i brought (laughs) i brought some pop culture in here (laughs) you're a real evangelical now look you're connecting the dots between real yeah i'm gonna start a sermon series pop culture do you like a a movies you know what is it sermon at the movies uh something like that my my old uh one of my old mega churches used to do that kind of thing they would do a a month-long series called rock god and the band would play some, you know, popular rock song. And then the pastor would come on and, and preach a sermon using the lyrics of that song as like a springboard into. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're just, yeah, I have not, you know, I've not been drinking during this podcast. I've been drinking seltzer water, but I'm now wishing I had, um, you know, something else. Um, no, I, 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 I think the Joker analogy is really good because I think what, what's really, what stands out to me about that analogy is that. The Joker does not play by any rules. And so the mistake on the part of the mob bosses in that in that analogy is that they think they can control him. Like he'll do the, what they want and then they'll put him back in the – kind of back yeah. in the pen. And the Joker never goes back in the pen, right? And I think in the in the case of the Joker, that's just a sort of person who as um, – as uh, it, the, the, the famous line in the movie says, some men just want to watch the world burn. I, I think in Trump, it's less want to watch the world burn and is just wants to watch the world, you know, bow before him. He's just, he's yeah. just the clearest case of a narcissist. And so you're never going to put a narcissist back in the pen and just say, oh, thanks right. for your service. Thanks for doing what you did. Please be happy now that you got to be president or you got to, you know what I mean? It's like, once you've unleashed this force, you can't put it back. And mm-hmm. I, I think there are many who wish they could. I, I think there's a lot of, especially elites like in in evangelical donor classes who have a lot of money to give that wish they could they could really find a way for a Mike Pence to win or mm-hmm. you know a, a Marco Rubio or a Glenn Youngkin but um there really is no path anymore you really right. have to be Trump or DeSantis or you know someone along those lines because mm-hmm. you've unleashed the mob and the mob is not going to follow uh those dad joke telling stuffy you know dudes anymore they no. want they want a a, a barbarian so. Yeah, I mean, they're going to bring gallows to the yep. Capitol. 
So. It's, uh, it's all it's it's surreal. I think watching that play out on television was just such a surreal moment. Actually, Nate was in Canada with me when we were watching it, Man. and I had should have stayed. Had, Nate should have stayed. I should have stayed. Yeah. His mom was like, "Come home," it's, and he's like, "Why? Why? Why, did, why would why? I be safer she's, in the U.S.?" She's like, "You need to come back to come back to the uh, to the states." I'm like, what, "Why would I want to go?" That no, I'm safer here right now. <laughs> I actually had American cousins, evangelical cousins, who were at the insurrection, who yeah. were a part of that, and. I think for me it was it was an awakening, and when I, they were asking people to pray, and then they and then I knew I was starting to connect the dots of where they were based on the comments, and I was like, no, they're not at the insurrection, are they? And they were like, you don't know what's really going on. You're from Socialist Canada, and I was like, ooh, like this was just um, it was fascinating for me to see mm. my evangelical family, and it's interesting, like in my. I have some Canadian family, like in a family, let's say six siblings, half of them living in Canada and half of them living in the States, all evangelical. The ones that are Canadian don't understand Trump at all as evangelicals. They're horrified. The evangelicals in America seem to have drank some Kool-Aid, straight white American Jesus (laughs) Kool-Aid, and are also like at a family discussion, the uncles and aunts have made a truce. They will not discuss Trump. And it's because of that. The Canadians just cannot fathom how, as we evangelicals, do we reconcile this? And the Americans are like, how do you not support Trump? He is like the answer to our prayers and he's the Lord's anointed and stuff that for me as a Canadian, I'm just like, what? I grew up evangelical. I'm like, what is going on in this? I mean, I I deconstructed two out of it, but it it still was a shocker to me that 81% of white evangelicals voted for him. And it's still a lot to wrap my head around. I think your book does a fantastic job of helping people to understand yeah. how those undercurrents have played out throughout the years, how it's not something new. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how you feel going forward in the future. You mentioned Trump is the joker. You can't put him back in the pen. Are you worried about what potential can be? Like, I wish I had a crystal ball. Are you curious how this is going to go? And I am. Up? I mean, I'm, I'm, very, I'm concerned. And I think – so I think, you know, there's a, we have, we're in a moment right now that I think is quite um, – it's it's a strange moment because I think there's a lot of folks, not just not just folks like us who are concerned, but I think there's people on the other side who are within the Republican Party, who are influential pastors, who have a lot at stake uh, on whether or not Trump is going to be the guy in 2024 and so on. I think there are just a lot of people waiting to see. Like it, you, you know, we we talked about the mob earlier, Nate, and I think it's like that moment where. The mob boss is kind of like maybe going to get overthrown by the young up and comer or the new guy and. If you're a lieutenant at that point, you just wait to see who's the chief, who's the guy mm-hmm. in charge. And then I then I kind of like show my loyalty. And so we could have a situation – I have no idea. We could have a situation where Trump is the guy in 2024. It could be that Ron DeSantis is the guy or someone else. Here's what I think I, I'm pretty sure of is that the Republican Party is the, Repar- the party of Trumpism, even if Trump is not going to be the, the nominee or the figurehead or whatever um, – Trumpist policies on immigration, on COVID, on schooling are the ones that someone like DeSantis is touting and he's even going further than Trump. So, you know, the the evangelical cousins you talk about um, are not going to be like, yeah, all right, Trump's not the guy. All right, we get it. We'll put down the anti-vaxxer stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, know, we'll start listening to health. We'll, you know, we'll start caring about all Let's reach across the aisle. Let's reach (laughs) across. Like, you know what I mean? Like, none of, I think what they're going to say is, all right, no Trump, you better give me somebody who's a good enough kind of stand in or I'm not going to vote and I'm not going to be part of it. And the GOP Mm -hmm. elites know that. And so Mm -hmm. we may not get Trump, but Trumpism for, for now, I think is here to stay. We live in an era of unprecedented access to information, news, and media. 
But what happens when all that information leads you to suddenly realize you spent the majority of your childhood in a cult? Well, we can tell you. Join me, Jessica Goforth, and Kathleen Reynolds as we take you into the world of cult recovery after all the emotional, psychological, financial, and sexual abuse we experienced as part of Bill Gothard's Advanced Training Institute. On our podcast called Leaving the Village, we talk candidly about our journey out and interview other survivors whose experiences will boggle your mind as scandals continue to rock the twisted world of IBLP. Subscribe to Leaving the Village today so you don't miss a single episode. Hey everyone, I'm Nate from the Full Mutuality Podcast. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into this show. We're so grateful that you've decided to spend your time with us. Seriously, Dan, Gail, Jessica, Kathleen, Scott, and the rest of us here at the Dauntless Media Collective couldn't produce content like the show you're listening to without your support. I'd also like to invite you even further into the conversation. Right now, there are some great discussions happening over in the Dauntless Media Collective Discord server. If you're interested in chatting with other folks who are deconstructing and decolonizing the oppressive traditions that they came from, please feel free to hop on into the server. If you don't know what Discord is, it's a place where communities can gather online for chatting on a wide variety of topics. In our Discord server, we have channels devoted to general deconstruction conversations, some meme sharing, therapeutic venting about whatever religious bullshit you're currently dealing with, and even a channel specifically devoted to talking about the latest episodes of the podcast you're listening to right now. I hope you'll join us. You can log in directly to the Dauntless server by clicking the link in the show notes or heading to dauntless.fm and clicking the link in the top banner. See you there. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, some of my, um, I guess, uh, pre- predicting or, or, or theorizing uh, comes from the fact that uh, what you had mentioned before about the inability to put a narcissist back in their pen once Trump has gotten a taste of that power, he's not going to be willing to let it go. So even if the Republican Party were to put DeSantis in uh, on the ticket, um, I don't think Trump walks away. I think Trump attempts to primary and and if he faces DeSantis, I think he loses to DeSantis. And I don't want to be a pundit, but I'm going to I'm going to be a pundit today. Um, I think he loses to DeSantis in the primary, but I don't think he goes away. I think he tries to come back in the general as an independent, which then splits the Republican vote. And I think the optimist in me, because I am forever the optimist, sees <laughs> sees the opportunity to split the Republican vote vote between uh, an independent Trump and uh, a Republican ticket that has DeSantis at the top. And that split vote gives um I, I want to say Kamala Harris because I really think Biden needs to retire and and just say, you know what, I'm going to because look, your constituency are, are people our age. But I, I don't I don't know. I think I think with America Biden electing wanna... like the oldest people in the entire <laughs> political world, we just like constantly I, get octogenarians else, to, to lead country. our country. I Every know. other country has young young politicians, and and uh, the U.S. Look, Biden looks like he's he could pa- like he could pass away if he tries to go for another. Tr- like it's concerning. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I have so many thoughts on mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Justin Trudeau, just you know, he's there's mm. there's a lot to say, but mm. young, youngish mm. as politicians go, and Macron is like you know he's mm. you know Macron and. We could go to New Zealand and, or we could mm-hmm. go to, to, to Finland and they have like these young uh, women who are their prime minister. I mean, just amazing stuff. All right. Yeah. 
I, so here's okay. If we if we want to play pundit and we just want to be like have some fun, like let's have some fun. So I don't let's let's imagine what could go on. So so I think there's a way, and you're gonna. I, and I think these essays are being written, and they have been written. Is like so I I so Nate, if we if I if I'm like going along with what you say, there is a scenario where uh, DeSantis beats Trump in the primary. Trump's like, are you serious? Of course I'm running third party. Of course, mm-hmm. like I'm Trump, right? Mm-hmm. And then. Like there's a scenario where maybe Biden is just a stand in again. He's just a stand in candidate. People will vote for him. He's safe. He'll get uh, a lot of votes from across the country, especially in the South. Like Biden did very well in the South and he Mm -hmm. did very well among African-American voters. Um, And so, all right, we have a second Biden term and maybe who knows what happens. and, and, And there you go. Okay, there's an even further scenario where like the Trumpist wing of the party, the, the, the people that really held up McCarthy for being speaker, um, the, you know, the, 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 the Carrie Lake, Taylor yep. Greens and yep. yeah, they, they splinter and go with Trump. And all of a sudden you have what almost appears like the end of the Republican party as we know it, hmm. because yeah. it's, it's like, you know, to get really wonky and really weird and people are going to be like, you know, please stop like the know nothings of the <laughs> 1850s or other political parties that have existed in American history. Mm-hmm. There's ways that things die. And yeah. so do I think that will happen? I actually don't, but mm-hmm. that's one scenario. Like you can see how Trump would take with him enough Republican, not just voters, but like, what is Matt Gates going to do? He's going to yeah. support Ron DeSantis. What, what is right. Marjorie, you know, what is Lauren Boebert? What are these folks? What ch- Gosar, mm-hmm. Biggs, you know, all of these election deniers, are they just going to, they're going to tell their people they're with DeSantis now. It, it's a, that's a really weird mm-hmm. and awkward choice. And you could see some real, like if the Democrats ever had their shit together, this is where they would just like dominate. This is where they would yeah. just put forth those young 40 something politicians that are excited and ready to go. And just like, here we go. We're actually yeah. going to just dominate this election cycle. But it's, they are Democrats. The Democrats so. can get their I shit mean, together. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at the Republic talking about getting their shit together. 15 rounds to vote in the Speaker of the House. Like the Republicans do not in any sense have their shit together if we're going to talk about that. And I fit my dream scenario since we're doing the pundit thing. Yeah. My dreams. And because I'm Canadian and we have a th- more yeah. than two party system, I dream of the U.S. having more parties. This yes. is what I dream of as a Canadian. Yes. I'm like, if you split the, the Republicans, then the Democrats have permission because one of the reasons the Democrats, in my opinion, are like it's frustrating to even think of, if I, you know, if I were to ever be a citizen in the U.S. and vote, what in my head it would be like, I'd love to vote for an AOC type of someone younger, some of the more progressives that are seen as extreme. Like as a Canadian, it's hilarious to think Bernie AOC extreme. Like we listen to that. And we're like, what <laughs> over here? That's just so middle. It's not or maybe slightly left, but like, She's like Liz Warren is a right winger in Canada. <laughs> you're like, how, how is this? How is, how are these people so like scary? Right. No, to, you know, agree. but I think the Democratic Party tries to cover such a huge swath and it would be fun for the U.S. to have a real left. In my mm-hmm. opinion, they don't really have a left. So I would my dream scenario, split the right, split the left, have more variety of yeah. stuff where people and do ranked vote choice ranked voting choice would voting. be like a dream. You know, and my it's a lot I, of dreams, I, a lot of, I have a lot of pipe dreams, dreams for the U.S. <laughs> I have a lot because the way things are happening now in terms of democracy for the U.S. is bleak. It's a little scary. It's a little yeah. um, it doesn't look good for how the direction yeah. of things. You know, no, no, I, I agree. I, I I share the dream, um, and it it it's 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 unfortunate that that mm-hmm. is such a hard scenario to see come into fruition. But I share yeah. that aspiration for sure. Yeah, everything you just said. Yeah. So I want to backtrack um, a little bit and maybe get get kind of personal. I'm gonna go biography a bit, and, and so your your book is called Preparing for War, and 
I find that fascinating because coming from the fundamentalist world, uh, we loved songs like, um, you know, I'm in the Lord's Army, mm-hmm. um, Onward Christian Soldiers. Um, you didn't even have to be a fundamentalist to know those songs. True. We were singing that too. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm curious, um, as far as your background, um, you've talked about it quite a bit on your own podcast and I've heard you talk about it in, in interviews as well, that your mentality as a teenager was in that, that sort of, uh, vein of, of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Christian soldier kind of thing. Tell us a little, could you tell us a little bit about that, about your, your history as yeah. you were growing up and, and coming up in, in Christianity? Yeah. So I converted at 14. Um, and it was like a super extreme conversion. Um, so I, I was just a real punk little, little dude, just a real <laughs> something. Um, and so I was getting in trouble. Um, I was pushing the boundaries with, um, you know, teenage stuff and, um, converted really, really hard. And so like went from the guy that, Hey mom, can you take us to the movies? And then we never went to the movies. We went behind the movie theater and, you know, people are smoking pot. People are doing this and that to like, I'm going to stand in mom. Can you take us to the movies? What we're not going to go to the movies. We're going to stand outside in front. And like, when people come out, we're going to be like, Hey, have you met our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ? Um, <laughs> that's a like, transition, like that's a hard what, pivot. Yeah. It, and that happened within a year. And I'm, people think I'm exaggerating. Like I'm not. And you can go back. You, you, I'll give you the names and addresses. You can interview my friends from that period. And they'll be like, yeah, Brad went from one kind of asshole to another. Um, and so um, so I, I do that. And then uh, all through high school, like I'm just that that dude. So I led a Bible study at my public high school. So on like Tuesdays, if you um, – sat near a certain planter. There was like 20 of us and we'd sit and go through the book of John. Um, I did see you at the poll every Friday. So I, I wow. would go every Friday and just pray by myself. Uh, cause sometimes someone would come with me, but, um, you're hardcore. You're like, even if I'm the only one standing yeah. for Jesus at the flagpole, I'm going to take back this nation for Jesus. Totally. Me, Riley no, Onishi by uh, myself. That's yeah. if you met me, it was uh, so even, you even do, kids. You, in the, you do remind me of a younger me. Like it's, yeah, it's right? <laughs> like that awkward, like so devout, so sincerely devout though. Like you really meant this wholeheartedly. Mm. How do and you so, go from that? <laughs> to where <laughs> to where I am now. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I converted because Christianity provided evangelicalism provided answers to life's hardest questions. Like I was a really uh, angsty kid. I was prone to depression. I was prone to just anxiety. I would sit out in front yard in, in Southern California, warm weather all year. And I would just lay in the, the driveway and look up at the stars and just be like, what's the point of living? Why, why are we here? So when you get Ooh, to evangelicalism, deep right? Questions. Yeah. And like, you know, and now I'm like a, prof- I'm a nerd, right? Super nerd. <laughs> this is all I do. I'm a professor. This has been my life. I'm 42. It's just like, and so it all makes sense that that's how I was as a kid. But like back then when you get to youth group and you're 14, all the long divisions taken out of the equation and it's just, hey, here's the answers to life's most fundamental questions right here. God loves you. You accept Christ. You live forever. You're part of a community. We accept you. We should try to save everyone else because it's all going to go bad. The bad people will get punished. The good people won't, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, okay, wow. Didn't have to do the long division. Didn't have to learn the equation. Didn't have to like memorize any, you know, sine, cosine. I uh, just sort of like we, it all happened. And once I got on that path, I was like, I have the answer. Now I got to just go for it. And it was really brainy, right? Like, don't get me wrong. I accept Jesus in my heart, but he went to my brain like real quick. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And if that's how you work, then if your brain starts to like realize that there's way more out there that's, and that life and existence and the human condition are crazy complicated, you can only hold yourself in those answers for so long. Those answers right. at some point start to look really adolescent. 
And as an adult, a 20-year-old, a 21-year-old, a 22-year-old, you start to think, is abortion this symbol? Is the death penalty? Is heaven and hell? Is like, I remember I used to play basketball a lot at church. And there was this guy who would, who would come and play. And he was part of our church, but he only came on Sundays. He wasn't like a, a devoted guy, right? And he was a real estate agent in town. And I know now he only came on Sundays because a real estate agent in town, it was good for him to be part of a church. It was like a good way to sell houses, like be a yeah. man of the community and you could trust them to sell yeah. your house. And he was just – and it's like his kid was in my youth group and I was a pastor and like she hated him. He was just clearly a guy that if we saw him right now would be like asshole, right? Mm. And I remember thinking and I asked someone, I was like, so you're telling me Scott's going to heaven and Gandhi's not? And they were like, well, I was like, no, but seriously, like Gandhi is not in heaven, but that dude is. And they were like, well, and, I, and like when you're 16, you can kind of deal with it. But when you're 21, 22, you're like, no, Scott's an asshole. And Gandhi, every time I read about Gandhi, I'm like, that's like a top 1% amazing human being. How does that, how does that work? I tried to vote for John Kerry in 2004. And hmm. my elders were like, look, you can vote for this guy if you think he's going to help poor people or immigrants or blah, blah, blah but you're voting for murder. He's going to murder millions of babies because he's for abortion. And I, I was like, after that election, I was like, this is just, this cannot be, are you serious? Like, is it that, am I going to go through my whole, I'm like 23. Am I going to go through my whole life? Just with these simple ass answers, mm. no wonder, no curiosity, no complexity, no exploration, just black and white, this or that us and them all day, every day for the next 60 years. And this is all there is. So I think that adolescent devotion turned into adult um, curiosity and wonder very quickly. And, and evangelicalism is just really bad at holding that in, mm. right? If you're just – if that's who you are, it's just really hard to keep that in check. And, you know, I was married, but I didn't have kids. I moved to England 6,000 miles from home. And just like the Canadian Christians, I was surrounded by a lot of Christians in, in the UK, but they were like so different than the American mm. – like they drank beer and they thought George W. Bush was a dick, you know? <laughs> And they were just like, what's up with you guys? And I was like – and, you know, it's really easy at that point to get on a, on a road where you, you land where I am now, um, mm -hmm. I guess. So anyway, yeah. Higher education, traveling outside the U.S., expanding your horizons to people who think differently than that's you. How yeah, you that's how you get that's brainwashed. A slippery slope into <laughs> communism, I think. No, so. they were right. They were all <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, they were. Well, it's, it's no wonder that there's such a heavy kind of militance in uh, – at, at at the individual level because they need to protect this incredibly fragile um, worldview because of um, how simple it is and how yeah. it can't – it doesn't hold up under much scrutiny beyond what a 14, 15, 16-year-old would be uh, you know, viewing – the lens through which a 14, 15, 16-year-old yeah. would be viewing the world. And so that's that's where I think that 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 kind of militance comes from and then it and then it just – embodies itself in fear and a lack of any sort of self-reflection, self-criticism, yeah. which I, I, I wish there were a way to, to cultivate that in white conservative Christianity, but I, you know, it's, it's, it, it seems, it seems impossible aside from in, uh, in perhaps in the main line for the most part. But like, so just to touch on stuff we talked about earlier, right? So part, so part of me used to think it's impossible to do that, Nate, because, it would upset the theology, right? The theology mm -hmm. is too fragile. But you know what I I'm really really think now after writing the book and just sort of doing the work I do is like, if you do that, what you just said, that complexity, the wonder, the curiosity, yeah, the theology is going to get fucked up. But you know what's going to get really fucked up is like the white supremacy, mm -hmm. the American nationalism, the patriarchy, 
the xenophobia. And then you're really on the road to losing your place, at least, you know, in your own mind in the country. And and all the stuff is gone. All the family, the way you've organized the family, the way you've organized the marriage, the way you've talked about children and men and women and, and you know, borders and nations, and it's all fucked. So mm-hmm. that's really what I think, you know what I mean? Like, why can't we do the complexity? Part of it's the theologies too, um, uh, adolescent, but a lot of it is just the, the like protect, do, do, you know, we were making fun of woke and CRT earlier and it's like, yeah. don't upset the systems because the systems are what keep us here. And yeah. if you start questioning the systems, then it, you're, we're going to end up in a place we don't want to be. It's too scary. Yeah. I, I remember, um, you know, I, my, my deconstruction was a long process and I, I took, you know, steps, uh, along the journey at, at over the course of, of quite a few years. Um, but there was one that was a little bit later. Uh, it was, it was closer to my walk away from evangelicalism entirely. And I remember thinking, uh, it was around July 4th and I remember thinking, you know, why are we like as, as Christians, if our allegiance is to the kingdom of God, why are we pledging allegiance to a flag of an earthly totally. nation? Totally. Um, and this becomes kind of the mark of who we are yeah. as Christians. This is uncomfortable for me because of the things that that I had been taught as a Christian. Um, and it, and then when I questioned that, I got the backlash from a number of friends, and that's when it started to hit me. Like, oh no, well, no, we're not worshiping God here. We're not worshiping Jesus. We're worshiping the United States. That's what our churches are centered on. And that was one of the, the, the things that started, started my, my walk away from, from the evangelical church entirely. Yeah. But yeah, like, but then it, it becomes, I think one of the things that really bothered me was how tied in all of that was to the military. And I remember seeing this image, uh, this art piece that, that went around the internet as a meme, but it was a, a picture of, of Jesus being crucified on like a, a, a fighter jet. And, <laughs> and I, I remember seeing that and thinking that is, that's, that's American Christianity right there. Wow. You, you say you want to hold on to uh, Jesus as your king, but, but Jesus is, is on, he's, he's on the side of, of this, this yep. militant. Totally. Yeah. No, I, I had those same thoughts. I mean, you know, when I deconstructed, there was, we had the Iraq war, right? We had a lot of, um, just American empire talk back then. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and you just start to wonder why is the American flag in our sanctuary? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What is that doing here? What is that? As a Canadian, when I am uh, listening to the sports and the national anthem, and it's it's so different being outside the U.S. Yeah. when you come in from somewhere else. That the American, I mean, I make fun of it all the time. But the American, my mom's American and my foster mom's American, but they have American flags even in Canada in front of their house, and we just laugh at it because it's like it's a stereotype. But when I go into the states, I find it even more funny. Like I'm like, okay, fine, you guys are in Canada, put your American flags to show you're still American. But like you're in the, I always when I'm in the states with Nate, I'm always like, look. I know where I am still. We're still in the U.S. I'm not getting lost. Like, but I, the bigger, the like the, the flag size, I don't see anything like that in Canada. Like, there's something. It's just so culty and weird, and the way they sing the anthems and turn towards it in the sports events with the military out, and like these kind of things to me just are so bizarre and strange. And I feel like maybe for Americans, it's just you're so used to seeing it that it doesn't even seem no, odd. But when you're coming from the outside, it's just you notice it so starkly, and it's startling. Like you really feel that empire slash country. 
cultiness around the U.S. And um, yeah, that's. But it's yeah. so adolescent. Like, okay, mm-hmm. so I'm going to give a super weird niche example right now, and a lot of and people are going to are going to think I, you know, I didn't know what this guy was that weird, but that's fine. Okay, here we go. I'm going to try it out and just see if it lands. Um, all right. <laughs> so when you're 16 and you have your first like significant other, there's like, and I don't know about kids now, who knows? They're just on TikTok. They don't even talk to each other in real life. But like, <clears throat> it used to be that like, you know, you, you, you had this like overwhelming over the top personal displays of affection, not in the Christian world, just in the normal world, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you always hold hands, but you're probably hugging. And, you know, it's like that 16 year old couples kissing whenever they can. And like, you know, you're standing behind them in the line at the amusement park and they're just like making out and you're just like, come on, why, why? Just why? We no one. And like the, the love and the affection is so young that there needs to be a reaffirmation of that affection at every turn, right? Not mm-hmm. at like opportune moments or important events or important times in the relationships like history. It needs to be constant, constant, constant. Otherwise, the love doesn't exist. Otherwise, the desire, the affection, the the commitment doesn't exist. And I just, the United States has always been, right, this way. Alexis de Tocqueville comes here and describes it, right, as a Frenchman. is just like, the, this is a young country mm-hmm. that at every moment is just like, here's our flag. We're amazing. Yes. Yeah. Do you love America? Because <laughs> I do. Right. And everywhere you turn, whether it's a sporting event, whether it's someone's house, whether it's their swim trunks, whether it is their. Oh, my gosh. No, <laughs> tattoo, you know what I mean? It actually happened, Bradley. We were with some of Nate's friends and one of them came out with the American flag trunks and my Canadian friends were with me and we all were like, whoa. And he was from Texas. So it like made the scenario even more like, wow, like we. This happens. This is for real. (laughs) It's funny that you put it that way because, you know, the the U.S. is an adolescent nation compared to most of the rest of the world. Canada excluded because Canada's Mm -hmm. a younger nation. We are a younger nation and we don't pull off that crap. You don't see these massive, huge ass (laughs) Canadian flags and we're like, yeah, look at us. You still have the queen on your money. I was just going to say, the queen is on your money. The queen is on your money. (laughs) And that is why. That is why. That is why. There's only so far you can. There's a very clear ceiling in Canada. It's the queen. Okay. So, well, it'll be the king soon, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. The king. Yeah. I think Canadians um, are maybe will start to pull that off their money mm-hmm. once the king's face is on there. Um, I know we were super appreciative of your of your time, Brad. And I wanted to, I, I guess, because we're yeah. both pessimists, uh, you did an end of the year wrap up, um, yeah. and you had a hopeful ending to it that I really loved. Um, yeah. That I thought was really nice. And you talked about history and the the side of me and you that kind of like doomsday kind of can yeah. easily go in that direction. Uh, I don't know if you remember what you said. Oh, yeah. Any, yeah, yeah. yeah? Do you, would you mind repeating a little bit of sure. that? Sure. I want to talk about American swim trunks though real quick. So like, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> this is the good people that wear American flag swim trunks are the ones that are going to be like, I love my country. I stand for the flag. I kneel for the cross. Right. So here, mm-hmm. anytime you tell me that, here's what I'm going to say is like, look, okay, Jeff, you're wearing, you're wearing American uh, flag swim trunks right now. So you're rubbing your junk <laughs> all over. Our sacred symbol. You're the least patriotic motherfucker I know, man. <laughs> Would you ever rub your junk on the Bible? Would you do that? Mm-hmm. Would you rub a, your 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 junk all over a family heirloom? How about a medal that your your granddaddy got in World War? You wouldn't do that, would you? But you're doing that to our flag. Don't ever talk to me about being patriotic, Jeff. Mm-hmm. You're the least patriotic person I've ever met because your parts that I want nothing to ever know about or think about are all over the flag that I 
a door as an American. So you go home and you think about it, change your clothes, wash those. And, uh, you know, when you, when you realize what you've done, maybe you can come out and talk to us about being a country uh, of people who love their nation. Otherwise, uh, shut it. Okay. Cut that crap out, Jeff. Yeah. So I, I, I am a pessimist, but I do think that, you know, one of the things as we like enter the new year that is really, um, on my mind is that, you know, there, there's an idea that uh, the arc of the universe bends towards justice. And Martin Luther King Jr. said that. And it's easy to it's easy to think that that's, um, you know, hard to believe in, in the years that we've had. And it's easy to think that there's a sense of entropy where, you know, democracy is just sort of sliding into abyss in this country and perhaps in Brazil uh, where things are uh, going mm-hmm. down and in the UK where things are, are happening and other places, right? Um but, you know, one of the things that is has really struck me, I read a great book, um, uh, a map for the missing recently that, that talked about this, is that history is not fate and history is not destiny. You know, history is a group of people who have been thrown into the world without a choice, all, like all of us. Mm-hmm. None of us decided to be here, but now we're here and we have to decide what to do. And it's all of us walking in a direction um, and, and doing it together and saying, you know, I'm going to walk. And if enough of us walk this way, we're going to make a path. And not only will it be easier for us to keep walking because we'll have each other to do it, but we're going to create a path for those who come after us to follow. And history is made. History is accomplished. History is exercised. And history is just us continuing to walk when we don't want to, when we can't see all that far in front of us, when our knees are sore, our back hurts. We're not sure uh, how much longer we have to keep going, but we got each other next to next. uh, We got someone next to us. And we, we realize that if we don't walk, who will? Because there's going to be people after us who need hope and they need a way to, uh, uh, to understand this human condition that's one that is full of wonder and full of love and full of inclusion rather than one that's full of a myopic uh, sense of exclusion and hate um, and carnage. And so, uh, you know, we have a chance to make history and that's like the most trite and, and naive and really like, you know, uh, Hallmark kind of statement ever. But um, what I mean by that is just we have just a chance to walk every day um, together and to do so in a way that means that history could and just might and maybe move towards justice. Mm. We don't know yet, but that's, 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 that's why we get up in the morning and that's why we don't give in to nihilism. We don't give in to pessimism and we don't, um, we don't give in to the authoritarians and the fascists that certainly uh, want to take control of, of everything. I, I definitely appreciate that. I don't think it's trite. Actually, I, as, a, as a podcaster, as someone in that sort of deconstruction zone, and I know there's so many, like you're a podcaster, I'm a podcaster. Scott, I think of all the different people we even mentioned in this, in this, <laughs> on this podcast today. And I think of how we're all doing something similar when you talk about walking side by side. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast as I've been driving back and forth to see Nate. We live five and a half hours away yeah. from each other. Yeah. And it's encouraging to hear someone else. If You know, this is our first time chatting, but like, I feel like I know you. I feel like we've been, we've been walking side by side. I've been really yep. excited to have you on to talk about your book. I really appreciate the work that you've been doing. I appreciate the way you have been a voice and a support to those of us who who don't want to see the U.S. go down that path and who want to envision something differently. And there are a lot of us. And I, I, I talk, I know Nate does too. We want, we want to encourage people who are maybe feeling alone in their communities. Maybe they're in a, in a Southern, I was going to say Bible Belt. Maybe they're in Southern California <laughs> yeah. and they're like, oh yeah. my goodness, I'm just surrounded with people who don't, who don't understand where I'm coming from. But like to know that, know what they're experiencing and feeling, a lot of us are with them. We're walking yeah. alongside of them and, and we're trying to build a community too and encourage each other along yeah. as we walk that path. So yeah. Yeah, I really awesome. appreciate, want to say thank you so much. Oh, for yeah. what thank, you're doing. thank you. Thank both of you. 
thank yeah. thank you for the work you're doing. And I think uh, as we as we uh, as we wrap up, um, I did want to make mention because you know you, Brad, and myself, uh, Scott as well. The three of us are Japanese American. Um, you and Scott have uh, a few more generations here and have uh, a different history. A different heritage than I do, being the son of an immigrant who came here post World War II. Uh, but I was encouraged by the uh, the news from the Biden administration uh, about the work that they're going mm-hmm. to be doing regarding the Japanese concentration camps in America, and, and and part of me is is both encouraged and saddened by some of the the performative aspect of it, the fact that what is happening at our border, uh, at our southern border. The atrocities that are taking place there, the the quite frankly Obama era policies that were then cracked down by the Trump administration and and not done anything about by the Biden administration um, is is certainly unfortunate. But I am encouraged by uh, something like this, however performative it might be, to to basically say, you know what, uh, we know as a country, we know what we did. And, and yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if you want to share any thoughts regarding that, given, given the, the news that just came out. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, there's always a performative aspect. I think there's always a sense in which, um, there's, there's political points to win, uh, somewhere, but, uh, there's also a sense in, in which, um, you know, I, I've had this experience many times, even in, even in like, you know, my wife's family, I'll talk to her aunt or I'll talk to whoever and say, Hey, what do you, what did you know about Japanese incarceration before you met me? And they're like, nothing, didn't know that happened. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, you know, I've, I've taught college, you know, in Tennessee, I've taught college in Virginia, New York, I've taught at really good schools, like places that, you know, people, people want to go to university. And many of those kids never heard of Japanese incarceration until they got to my class, right? Mm-hmm. So um, this is a chapter in our history that I think is instructive for the ways that uh, the United States um, – has allowed for its xenophobia and its exclusionary impulses to take over. You know, I live out here on the West Coast and um, that just to this day, uh, camp, you know, as we refer to it in, the, in Japanese American community, resounds throughout the community. Mm-hmm. Um, just recently, my dad helped to get some soil from Maui because there were actually, people don't realize that there are actually um, internment sites, incarceration sites on Hawaii, on the Hawaiian Islands, even though they weren't nearly as um as populated as those on the mainland. And, uh, he, he helped get some soil for a project, uh, that is, is gathering, uh, all the names of everyone who's incarcerated, even those on the Hawaiian islands and mm-hmm. uh, Duncan Williams at USC is putting this together. So, um, that memory is harder to keep now because many of the people who were in camp have died. Um, mm-hmm. and so we're at a kind of critical moment where these, these memories and these memorials mean a lot. Um, so, you know, as you say, it's always tempered, but for the Biden administration to make overtures is a positive step in some mm-hmm. in some sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brad, thanks again. Uh, really appreciate you uh, joining us and having this conversation with us. Um, the book is called Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Um, I don't know why I'm holding it up because this is not a video podcast, but here it is. <laughs> um and uh, and already it uh, it was it made number one on Amazon when it came out something like that. So I don't know. They have a lot of yeah. categories on Amazon, so you know you can yeah. feel good about it. Which is I, I appreciate. There's like you know seventy three thousand categories, so it was number one in one of those. Which yeah. Is Are you going to make your way out on your book tour towards NYC Philly area at any point in the future? I'm Love trying. to have a meetup. 
I'm trying really hard. Um, we're trying to get one together for February 11th in Philly. It may or may not happen. Um, so we're working hard on that. But NYC is like on, I have so many people in NYC, uh, mm. including the two of you that I would love to see and meet and hang with. And so um, trying really hard to get that together. You know, and, if you don't do NYC and you do Philly, we'd make the two hour trek to come. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely come support you in that. So well, February 11th, February 11th, cool. if, if people are listening, uh, we're trying for that. So we'll see details coming hopefully soon. The new evangelicals, Blake at Chesting, a bunch of us mm-hmm. are trying to get something together. We, cool. uh, Dr. Dre, um, Snoop Dogg. Um, <laughs> so we will see. Uh, Missy Elliott. Um, and so we'll see who else. Beyonce, Jay-Z, just, yeah. you know, get them all. They're all yeah. working. They're all working yeah. really hard to make it happen. Yeah, Adele um, cannot come, but we, we did get Jewel. So <laughs> nice. uh, we're really excited about that. Um, so <laughs> Great. So, um, Brad, where can people find you uh, on on the interwebs? Yeah, I'm at Bradley Onishi on Twitter, um, at StraightWhiteJC on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, can find me at BradOnishi.com. And we, we do Straight White American Jesus three, day, uh, three days a week. So come hang out. and So much good uh, content. Yeah, and we got cool. some good stuff. And so come find us. Cool. And for all you uh, people who love to check the show notes, we'll put all those links in the show notes. If you're behind the wheel right now, just try to memorize what we just said. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Brad. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't already have one, head over to our website, fullmutuality.com, for a list of all the apps you can find us on. We couldn't do this without you, our listeners, so thank you so much for your continued support. Speaking of support, one of the best things you can do for us is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. I'm pretty sure five-star reviews get you an extra crown in heaven. Well, seriously, if you found this episode insightful, spread the word and share it with your friends. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Full Mutuality. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. Mm-hmm.